Well, good morning, everybody. We'll, uh, we're going to climb back into our study in Romans and uh, pick up from where we were a couple of weeks ago, but I just um, wanted to thank Grady for helping uh, fill in for, for, uh, for things. Um, So I want to start before we pray just with a couple of thoughts, and we'll get into this a a little ways. I'm going to try to move through the first section of this somewhat efficiently with caution as a reminder and then an extension of what we talked about last two weeks ago, but I know if y'all are anything like me, two weeks ago can be a long time to remember, so I want to kind of snap us back to that point. Um, we talked about this transition from, from Romans 1.18 um, to what is usually kind of segmented as the end of, uh, end of that chapter at verse 32, where you're confronted with this horrendous view of humanity over time. Um, and what ultimately becomes the composition of a generation or a society or a community of people who have been turned over by God to their own heart's desire. That is so important to grasp. God doesn't have to actively do anything other than let us go to the wickedness of our hearts. And that is so much of what Paul is going to unpack through this. We talked about early on in this study, I kind of showed you that, that expanse of the sections of this book. And for me personally, I related that to the old classic, you know, bridges that the Romans built, which were just a series of arches that had within those arches a set stone that would drop and hold all those pieces together. And I continue to see that as a valuable way. We are just walking across the very first kind of span of that bridge, and we're going to be in it a little while. But, of course, where we saw what I want to draw back to is that As Paul describes this horrendous society that has been turned over by God, we saw um, three different markers of that society. We saw a society utterly given over to immorality, sexual immorality, perverse immorality. We then saw a segment of that society marked by homosexuality, which is just a, uh, an offshoot or a companion of the general and pervasive sexual immorality. And I think that's where Paul really goes with this. We're going to work that out a little bit this morning. Um, a natural extension of a society that is utterly steeped in immorality. It's a very short walk to homosexuality and deeper perversions of that morality. But then you have the end of that chapter where you seem to see this wholesale giving over of that society as a, as a whole to what you would call, when you read Romans 1, 18 through 31, just a society utterly given over to lawlessness of every kind Right, And that's what you see in that chapter as it winds down. One of the points for those of you that may have not been here two weeks ago that I keep coming back to is this church in Rome, the people that have been saved into this church in Rome were saved out of that society and all of those behaviors, and we know that, and we're going to look at some of those passages again this morning, but it's just so important as we look at the composition of this church, right, where you have stated clearly by Paul, matured believers, 
who came from Jewish background and Gentile backgrounds. And then you have brand new baby believers who came from Jewish backgrounds and Gentile pagan backgrounds. And you have this mix of people uh, that as we saw two weeks ago, appear to have some uh, things they need to learn and be sanctified with, right? But they were saved out of those societies and out of that behavior that Paul just described in Romans 1, 18 through 31. We know that because we read from Romans 13, 12 through 14, and I'll share that with you now. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. He's speaking to the church here, <laughs> right? Why would he tell them to cast these things off? Because they're going on in the church. These brand new believers have brought them right into their new life. Remember that old man we talked so much about in Romans 1, 18 through 31, how he is right in your face, and Paul will bring him back up in Romans 6 and 7. But this is what you will begin to see, possibly painfully, is the continuity of Paul's thought through this entire book is extraordinary. I mean, the capacity of his mind to just be able to unpack this letter is wondrous, and I would encourage you to just look for that in this book. He says in verse 13 of Romans 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not, here comes the prohibition, in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. So he's describing all the things that, that he believes are going on in this church as a natural consequence of sinful people being brought to new life by the Holy Spirit, brought into this community, and now by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the church faithful, they begin their life of sanctification, of being separated, of being set apart. And for every new believer and mature believer in this church, they all brought baggage. And every bit of it needs the fellowship of the saints for it to be individually set apart, cut out, removed from their lives over time as the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the body of Christ does its gracious work on behalf of the Lord. That's the picture I want you to see because it's not my picture. It is what Paul is going to present through this entire book. Verse 14, the antidote, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. Go to war at the flesh, and he's going to teach us about that in the latter chapters, to gratify its desires. It's real. It's right here. It is by God's design. We remain in this flesh, and it has desires that tend towards sinfulness, and we better battle that every day with the body of Christ. So if we don't have close fellowship and communion and serious relationship with one another that is intended to go after the sin in our life in honor of our namesake, then we're a lot like all the other churches that really aren't at all interested in those kinds of legalistic things is how it's presented. Paul would have nothing to do with that idea as you read this book. Because he goes on to say, as we read two weeks ago, we didn't read this one, but it's very helpful as we get into this section of Scripture we're going to read from this morning and make this transition when he says, but, but who are you, O man, right? Look at Romans 14, 10 through 12. And we begin to see another layer of some of the challenges that are going on in this church. 
Romans 14, 10, 12 says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? And here comes the antidote for this. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Spoken to the church. And so many in the church today think that their testimony their prayer, or whatever it might be, has given them a pass out of this day of judgment that comes for the body of Christ. Because where does the judgment of God begin? In the household of God. Right? So he's saying, God has saved these people. Stop trying to bury them in your self-righteousness. You're going to make them what? Flee from the church. Now, I know this is a tension, isn't it? I've counseled in and out of the prisons with Mark and other places, and I have counseled people where you just want to look at them and say, dare you use the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the life you're living? And, and we had better be careful with that if we read this book carefully. Because who are we to judge one whom Christ has saved right out of that cesspool of life that every one of us are condemned by? That's what Paul's point is. It's a very powerful reality, and I want to spend time getting this foundation laid. Um, and it's a, for many of us, it's like digging up and laying a foundation underneath a bit of a building that's already been built, right, over our Christian lives. That's what this book does, is it sets a new foundation underneath of us. Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess, confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of all those sinful people you hung out with, you were in church with. We'll give an account of who? Ourselves. You can't help but wonder if that last tier isn't half full of how much we forsook in this life because we were not obedient to the word of God. Sobering, isn't it? And then back up with me just a little bit to Romans 12, 16. And you see another challenge and another dimension of this body that Paul is speaking to. He says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. You, you, what's the problem there? That is the class system finding its way perfectly comfortable in the church. Exactly what Paul talked about at the Corinthian church, James warned us about. That's the class system that is so much a part of society that allows us to look down upon those that are different in their circumstance, their upbringing. But again, I'll save that thought for just a minute. I want to I wanna read this, and then I want us to pray very, very just thoughtfully, lift our hearts up to the Lord. What you'll see in all of this throughout this book, and what you'll see as you read the Pauline corpus, is Paul has one central, insatiable, burning desire, and I am sure it came from that encounter when he got knocked off that high horse when he was on his way to go corral and kill, if necessary, whoever would call upon the name of that Jesus. Right? And what did Paul, what did Saul learn in those three days that he would learn how much he would suffer for Christ? How would he suffer? 
because he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. Imagine this, brother. Just pull yourself into the context of this man's life. The Hebrew of Hebrews at the very top of this class system. Who absolutely despised the pagan and all of their sinful ways. And so in the wonderful providence of the Lord, who does he call to go to be the one who would go to the Gentiles? Paul. And he had an insatiable, insatiable desire that he expresses in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. Again, in the midst of an absolute train wreck of a church, right? As we see it. And this is the, this is the thought as you're turning there that, it, that occurred to me. We are so much more inclined to bring our sanctified friends and family and brothers to church than we are to bring the sinner who may have just professed the name of Christ and now wants to understand what does that mean. That's what you have in the Church of Rome. That's what you have in the Church of Corinth. <laughs> and I think as the litany of passages we read two weeks ago, you see that was rampant and top of mind for Paul to teach them you're no longer your own, right? But this is Paul's heart, and we'll pray after this. Second Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. I wish you would bear with me a little foolishness. Do bear with me. See how personal and tender he gets and vulnerable he gets? For I feel a divine jealousy for you. What a beautiful thought right there. Just grab hold of that, put it in your heart, and apply it to the body of Christ because that's what Paul is doing here. Since I betroth you to one husband to present you, here it is, as a pure virgin to Christ. That is his life mission right there. And here comes his broken heart. And how broken would it be today? Look at this in verse 3. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve, so he takes us right back to the consistency of Satan in all of his ways, and they aren't that diverse. I'll give you a little clue. Genesis 3. The fountainhead of everything we see, particularly in the church today. Did God really say? Now, hold this thought, and hopefully we're going to get to this today. What's he causing Eve to do there? Doubt. doubt? Yeah, I was absolutely right. I would also add doubt and judge God. Who gets to judge who? Someone who feels there or has been positioned to be superior to another. You see the inversion that's in the background there? How inverted are things today? Deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And if it's a sincere and pure devotion to Christ defected, then it is uh, moving towards a sincere and pure devotion to my pastor, my Sunday school teacher, my dear brother, my dear sister, when it is always Christ. If any of us have anything to offer to each other, it is on behalf of and in the name of and from the word of God, period. 
right? And here he comes with the filling in the blanks. Uh, verse 4, for if someone comes and proclaims what? Another, what does that look like today? He just loves you just the way you are. You stay and you stand strong right in the midst of your sinful life. Do what? Sure. Yeah. You hear it? Sounds really great and noble. Okay. That's another Christ. That is a Christ who enables people to become righteous. Not a Christ who is the righteousness that people desperately need. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is precisely what Paul is going to unpack for the next six chapters. But he's got some work to do first, and this, this is very helpful in revealing that. Verse 4, for someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if received a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. In other words, I judged all those things that are true from God as inadequate, and therefore I'm going on to something else. For whatever motivation. Right. So with that as an opener, let, let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we just just with these very thoughts alone, just like that Gadarene that I just treasure the image of, just lay at your feet, humbled, properly dressed in your righteousness, in our right mind, not a futile or debased mind, wanting to be with you everywhere you go, wanting to be with you in our hearts and in our minds in every place we go, that we would be set apart, Lord, to your glory and to your praise and in your name's sake through the sanctifying work of your Spirit who has but one supreme purpose which is to conform us sinful people to you Lord and if there is one mark of your earthly life that separates you from everyone else it is your perfect obedience to the word of God because you knew it was the very breath of God your father May we take these things to heart, Lord, and may we understand them as Paul unpacks them in this precious book. And may we do this faithfully and in your precious name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, I got to move along. Um, so I want to unpack these next few verses. I want, to, I want to consider a few things with the question. What do you believe is Paul's primary intention of this section or this span of the bridge that we're walking across from Romans 1.18 all the way out to Romans 3.21? Anybody have any thoughts? You're squinting your eyes. Thank you. Do you hear? Do you hear, Jeff? Every one is a sinner. So we're gonna 
We're going to unpack that a little bit better. The best way to answer this question is go right to, right to where he, he winds down this section and transitions to from the, the, the universal problem, condemnation, to the universal answer or means by which we come out from under that condemnation. That is the transition he makes from Romans 3.21 to Romans 3.22. But we're given Romans 3.19 and 20 as the, the answer to, to what is his primary intention of this section. He says, now we know that whatever the law says it speaks to those who are under the law. And he, if you read the previous section very carefully, he has spoken to both the written law and the moral law written on our hearts. So he's, when he says law, he's talking about the entirety of what God has revealed to us through the word of God that governs our conscience. So he says it speaks to those who are under the law because that's every one of us. And that's why he says, so that every mouth may be stopped. To just point, every mouth. That's his purpose here. And bear in mind, he's teaching the church at Rome these things. And the whole world may be held accountable to God, believer and unbeliever alike right? For those that are in Christ, for the life they live in Christ. <laughs> for those who reject Christ, for the life they live outside of Christ without any means by which they can be justified to stand before a holy God. And then he puts an exclamation point on his entire purpose, which is for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law written on your heart and the law of God and the reading of the Bible teaches us one central universal truth. I am condemned. Condemned. And as I thought about that, and the fact that this is the foundation he has laid on under this book. It seems logical to assume that Paul did not want a single person within the reading of this letter to believe for one second that their standing before God had anything to do with them. That there was no single shred of righteousness that they can stand on that drew them favor or earned them favor, or earned them position, or earned a standing before God to plead their case. He wanted to make sure that every single reader understood that the only way to the saving gospel is through the condemning gospel. So that every mouth may be shut. And if that, dear brothers, is not the case, and you will find an awful lot of churches this morning who will argue that very, very diligently, then God is a liar. And much worse, he crucified his son unnecessarily because we really didn't need pure and perfect and finished work of Christ. And you talk about the most hostile judgment of God. It's right there. 
And I think that's precisely what Paul is bringing out in this section of Scripture. Matthew 7, 13 through 14, we're all very familiar with, but I want to read it and give you a thought. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Stunning passage, isn't it? When you really just accept God's word and, and just disengage your mind from what you would like, which would be a world that is all saved and all wonderful and all kind and all lawful, we want that so much we're often willing to ignore the fact that that is the opposite of what we have and it's getting darker, right? Let me ask you a question because this is what the little voice in my head at you know five or four in the morning does to me. <laughs> so I'm just gonna share the pain with you. Why is it so hard? this road, this way. Think about it. I don't mean that condescendingly. It took me a couple days to think about this. Why is it so hard? Yes. Build on that. Yes. Y'all hear that? Precisely right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. All that. Yes, yeah, perfect. Satan just enables what is inside of us, right? Yeah. And I'll go the wrong way like that. Can you say Peter? Out of the very mouth, God blesses him. And the very next thing he says, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Precisely to Mark's point. You see how dangerous our territory is if we're saved by Christ and then all of a sudden relying on ourselves? We are in deep trouble. And that's a time, back to my road, where we really need the body of Christ to be faithful to us and to Christ. If you see a brother sinning, a sister sinning, pursuing sin, walking and courting this world, do you love them enough to go after them in a loving and kind and gracious and biblical way? Or is it easier just to kind of say, you know, I'll pray for them, which we should, right? We don't like to admit that we are in this horrendous state of condemnation before God. You want to know the greatest testimony of that? Look at the churches today. It's fearful. Paul understands that we will never fully appreciate the gospel, the saving work of Christ, and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit if we don't understand from where we came. Let me read this passage to you from this very same book of Romans, Romans 8, 27 through 30. And the only way that Paul could write this from the work of the Holy Spirit is to believe with all of his heart and soul what the Holy Spirit has laid down in the first handful of chapters in this book. He says in Romans 8, 27, I'm sorry, 28, and we know that for those who love God, so it's a pre-existing condition, right? Always think of John, when we think about our love for God, 
Because John says, we love him because what? He first loved us. That is a statement about this passage. We would, the point is, we would in all that pride, in all that self-sufficiency, in all that inability to confess the truth about our hidden sin, we, we just can't possibly believe that God had to yank us from the domain of darkness out of his love within that inner Trinitarian love of the Father who gave to the Son sinners whom the Son would die for and the Spirit would regenerate and sanctify so that they could have that beautiful wedding feast and consummation. It was an inner Trinitarian love. And so Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Thanks be to God, because it's not all good, is it? For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, I'm going to emphasize, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also, there it comes, justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you get the emphasis there? He did it. He did it. He did it. And as far as they are concerned, the very moment he saved you, Rick, you were already glorified in heaven because it was determined from before the foundation of the world that that moment, at just the right time, you would be saved. And here's the, even the better way to think about it. You would realize that you're now saved because it was their work revealing that to your heart that could never, ever, to the point, never, ever confess that I need to be saved. I'm just fine. That's the problem with humanity. We are not okay, and the word of God shatters that, and the world hates it, and it will continue to hate it. But every once in a while, God is just going to bring a dead soul to life, and they're going to look at you like you're crazy. Remember some of those days in the prison, Mark? I remember Vasily, a Russian man. Uh, I probably shouldn't. I'll never get this. But when he came to know the Lord, it was the most wondrous thing I think I've ever seen. Sitting in a group of 35 prisoners around a basketball court. Stunning to watch. The Lord just, boom. <laughs> and he didn't know what hit him. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.18, to him be the glory forever and ever, and we can all say amen. Now, we talked a couple weeks ago about this transition of Romans 1 to Romans 2, and we're going to get to that now. But we emphasized, and I will confess that, that I read a lot of commentaries, um, and I think universally all of them saw this oh man as that condescending, morally superior hypocrite who looks down on people, right? And I believe that that is only one side. Or look at it this way, that narrow gate there's two ditches on both sides. One is that morally superior hypocrite who looks down upon those sinners, high and mighty from their whatever they want to call it. But there's another side that we see rampant today, particularly in the church. And I want to try to connect what kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. I want to challenge that there are two sides, and it's not just this condescending side. 
So let me read the text for you, and then we'll begin to unpack it. And I'm probably going to go right up to ten, uh, 9 o'clock, sorry. Uh, no, 10 o'clock, sorry. Let's just read carefully Romans 1.32 through 2.3 and forget the chapter title breaks. He has just finished this long condemnation of humanity from Romans 1, 18 through 31. And then he says, though, and I want you to pay attention to the pronouns and the verbs here. Though they, there's one of them, know God's righteous decree. So who's they there? That those, who's those, sorry to be so right, who practice such things deserve to die. So that question alone should ask you to force you to ask some questions. Who are the they and who are the those within the context of this passage? They, here they come again, not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's the key to understanding the next couple verses. These people aren't looking down as though they're so righteous and moral and condemning all these people. What are they doing? Giving hearty approval to them. Now hold that thought. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man. He is now, Paul's peeling right into this other side of this ditch. Every one of you who what? Judges. Now, what does a judge do when they preside over a hearing? They ultimately determine whether or not they are going to agree or disagree with the defense or the accusing prosecution. Sorry. You know this well, don't you? So we're going to get into a little deep water here. I think, I hope. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, listen to the way, you the judge, right? There's a pretty intense, right? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things we know that the judgment of god rightly falls on those who practice such things do you suppose O oh man you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of god somewhere along the line they think they have a ticket out of the judgment and consequence of their sinful behavior and it was right there that my brain kind of went sideways. Because the, that self-righteous moralist is easy to spot, isn't he? This is much more subtle. And as I dug into this, I have to take you back to the way we treated Romans 1.28. Go back to, just back up to verse 28, which launches, by the way, this this section. And Paul says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This word fit, dakamatsu, to put to the test for the purpose of approving and finding Put to the test for the purpose of approving and finding that the person tested meets the specification prescribed to put one's approval upon him. This is this word Paul uses, fit. In this passage, who is that word fit being applied to? God. 
Who's judging who? Man is judging God to see if he fits. <laughs> yeah. You might start seeing where we're going here. Dr. Boyce says the human race put God to the test for the purpose of approving him should he meet the specifications which it laid down for a God who would be to its liking. And finding that he did not meet those specifications, he refused to approve him as the God to be worshipped or have him in his knowledge. And God gave them over to a debased mind that can no longer even think rightly about God. Mm -hmm. That's exactly where my head went, Mark. So who is this? Who's the other side of that self-righteous? You might find it in the extreme fundamentalist churches, right? That believe they absolutely saved themselves. God is not sovereign. It was my free will to choose God. I was one of the choice meets, if anything, right? Then there's the other side. What does the other side look like? And you see this most vividly in the churches today, right? What does the other side look like? Universalism, God loves everybody. He accepts you just the way you are. He made you the way you are, embracing everything that God judges as if you are now superior to God and have therefore judged God, just like Romans 128 says, to be an inadequate God. And therefore, we're going to un, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament and anything that even breathes condemnation, and we're going to get us a gospel and a Jesus and a Bible that will totally embrace and approve what Paul has just condemned to no end. You see how fearful that is to be sitting in these churches that have been given. And it's the Roman Catholic Church. For those of you that might pay attention to the Pope, he is about to open the gates wide open to what has been rampant in that priesthood for decades, centuries. Just perverse lifestyles. How about the Episcopal Church? How about the Methodist church? How about, right? The list goes on and on. It is the church that goes, it's the church of we know better than God. Because he just doesn't fit the days we're living in. Yes. Sister, you just, like, <laughs> right here, right? And I think you'll see exactly what I mean. Go with me to Revelation 18, 4 through 6. And it says there, Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people. Speaking of Babylon, the system of Babylon which is straight out of Babel, the Tower of Babel, spewing, what was the Tower of Babel in the entire intent? To bring collectivism, to bring everybody together under one way and elevate ourselves to the heavens. That's Babylon. That's exactly what we're being called out of. This is true of every single believer. Right? Precisely your point. What should we think of them? R.C. Sproul helped me immensely with my many, many beloved Catholic family and friends. If the Lord saves them, they have begun the journey out of that church. And we have no idea 
how the Lord's providence will cause that to happen. But it will be the result of faithful people witnessing the truth versus the lie. And that is exactly true of every true believer that sits in these churches that are absolutely apostate today. There are believers in there. Revelation 1 through 3 tells us, right? Seven churches, five under condemnation, believers, pockets in each one of them, and we ought to be faithful. Okay, so we got four minutes left. That's awesome. I want to just read two final passages for you. Go to John 14, 6. This passage just takes everything we just talked about and just snaps it all into, it's like the kaleidoscope, right, or the telescope that is blurry, 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 or the doctor optometrist where they click, 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 and boom, everything's clear. This is the passage for that, right? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then in Matthew 22, I want to just read verse 37 through 40. As he's walked us through the the parable of the wedding feast, right? Verse 27, Matthew 22, verse 37. And he said to him, you shall, this was the Pharisees that heard, he had silenced the Sadducees, and they gathered together, and one of the, the lawyer, Gaul, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which of the great commandments, with, sorry, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first Commandment. Now, bear with me. You remember the beginning of Romans 1.18? What were the two indictments? Ungodliness. The vertical treatment of God. What was the second one? Unrighteousness. The horizontal treatment of one another. Here's our Lord just making that abundantly clear. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and all the prophet. And Jesus is not saying to unhitch yourself. He's saying the totality of the revelation of God is consumed and consummated in these two commandments. Love God, love one another as I have loved you. That's for the church, because only the church can respond to that. And Paul is going to teach us how to do that. Okay? So, thank you guys for your patience. <laughs>